Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty, second hour of the broadcast today. Ah, we got a lot of stuff to cover. Where to begin? Let me just give you a quick rundown of what I hope to accomplish in this hour. We're going to talk about uh, the Inspector General's report specifically. Now, how much do you trust the FBI to do the right thing? Robbie Suave from Reason.com actually has a warning about this that uh, I'm going to share with you coming up. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the magic of making do with what you have. I don't know if you're feeling a little overwhelmed by, uh, you know, the materialistic impulses. They kind of go with the season. But if uh, you want to hear a little bit about making do with what you have, believe it or not, that's a thing. And I see where the city of Spokane is prosecuting. And I don't just mean like, yeah, we're going to go ahead and charge him. Like they're throwing the book. Going back for a second bite of the apple, prosecuting a guy, a pastor who showed up at Drag Queen Story Hour and was going to... uh, Read, read scripture. He was trespassed from the library. And anyway, very interesting legal case. I mean, there, there's there's a whole bunch of, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion. But at the root of this, what was the event that he was attending? Yeah. Drag queen story hour. This push to sexualize children. Seems to be gaining momentum. And what's crazy to me is, at least in the case of Spokane, maybe some other areas, the state seems to be on the side of uh, those who are seeking to sexualize children. I mean, at what point do we say enough is enough? All right, we'll get to that in a few moments. Let's talk about Inspector General Michael Horowitz's testimony on FBI failures and how it should be a wake-up call for the media and the GOP. This is from Robbie Suave on Reason.com. And look, just long story short, he makes a good case here how Republicans were wrong to side with the state on privacy issues and the media was wrong to lionize anti-Trump G-men. He says Inspector General Michael Horowitz testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee on Wednesday, making crystal clear what he wrote in his report. The FBI investigation into the 2016 Trump campaign's possible collusion with Russia was not politically motivated, but agents involved in the probe made significant and appalling mistakes. Now, these mistakes should terrify all Americans, says Robbie Suave, but he says, more importantly, they should prompt serious reflection among surveillance states supporting Republicans who placed implicit trust rather in the nation's top law enforcement agency, as well as all those in the mainstream media who uncritically boosted the top men in that agency as quote, I'm sorry, hashtag resistance heroes. He says the IG's report and testimony have exposed the FBI's wrongful surveillance of Trump campaign advisor Carter Page, which was based on false and conflicting information that somehow made its way into a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act or FISA warrant and was then included three subsequent times as part of the warrant's reauthorization. FBI agents knew that the Steele dossier was unreliable and eventually learned that Steele's subsources had contradicted what was in the report. But they continued with the surveillance anyway. Now, the irony is that uh, Lindsey Graham, 
has been a full-throated defender of FISA courts, domestic surveillance, and other policies that threaten civil liberties. He conceded this during his comments on Wednesday, saying, look, I'm a pretty hawkish guy, but if the court doesn't take corrective action and do something about being manipulated and lied to, you will lose my support. Now, I was proud to see the Cassandra of the hour is Senator Mike Lee from my home state of Utah, who has been one of the only Republicans willing to sound the alarm about the potential for the FBI to violate Americans' rights under the current legal regime. Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska admitted that Lee's skepticism of the FISA courts now seems justified. And here Robbie Suave says it's a shame that it took congressional Republicans so long to realize that empowering a vast secretive bureaucracy to spy on people could easily go disastrously wrong. And it's telling that they've only conceded the point because the abuses have been directed at Trump. Moreover, despite their sudden interest in reforming FISA, nearly all the R's joined most D's today to reauthorize intelligence activities without reforms to protect Americans' rights. That according to Justin Amash. Now, Robbie Suave says, I'm glad some Republicans are apparently reconsidering their reflexive trust of the FBI, but clearly they have a long way to go. And he says that's true as well for the mainstream media which for far too long has given undeserved credit to Trump-critical law enforcement figures like former FBI directors James Comey and Andrew McCabe. Both have been lionized on cable news and in newspapers. They were routinely labeled brave truth-tellers who took serious personal risk to call out wrongdoing within the administration. Many of their criticisms of the Trump administration may have been well-founded. Under Comey's watch, the FBI made major errors— Comey and McCabe were directly involved in the decision to rely on the Steele dossier, a decision that the CIA had serious concerns about. Comey later misled the public about the extent of the FBI's reliance on the dossier. Indeed, many in the mainstream media had had previously claimed that the dossier was not the only basis for the FBI's interest in Page because they uncritically believed what the G-men were telling them. Well, we now know that's wrong. The Steele dossier was the FBI's key piece of of evidence. Comey is still trying to spin the IG's report as if it's some kind of indication. And Robbie Suave says that's delusional and it's embarrassing. If the media learns anything from this episode, it should be that the the fact that the Trump team has ostracized an insufficiently deferential public servant is not enough of a reason to embrace him as a hero and savior. I think I read that wrong. The fact that they've ostracized an insufficiently deferential public servant. There we go. The IG report is a wake-up call for Republicans who who foolishly claimed the FBI's secretive spying process was unnecessary and unthreatening. For anti-Trump media pundits who uncritically parroted the talking points of top officials. And for any Americans who still think it's worth trading away their liberties. Robbie Suave says if government agents were this sloppy during a politically charged investigation that they knew would put their entire apparatus under the spotlight, it's safe to assume that their normal conduct is even worse. Amen, bro. See, I I have trust issues with the FBI going back a little bit further. Like to, well, there's quite a waste. 92 the way that Ruby Ridge was handled, the unnecessary killing of Vicki Weaver, just the, the whole way that the FBI and other federal agencies handled that, very, very ugly. Same thing with Waco. 
ugly, ugly stuff there. I'm still not sure that the 1995 Murrah Federal Building wasn't an FBI sting operation that got away from them. There are some pretty credible concerns that come up when you take a little closer look at that story and disbelieve the the narrative. And of course, what happened with the Bundy family and ultimately what happened to Lavoie Finicum up in, in Oregon, the FBI was at the very root of those problems as well. Now, I know, I know the, the, the narratives, no, the, Bund- the Bundys brought this on themselves, but I mean, the, the reason the case collapsed, the reason it was thrown out to avoid further embarrassment was because it was discovered that the FBI had lied about the Bundys or had lied about the, the surveillance and the kind of operation that was being undertaken against them. It was the FBI that put the siege mentality to play in uh, Burns, Oregon. That blew up this image of of Lavoie Finicum as this, uh, you know, unrelenting domestic terrorist willing to die rather than submit to the laws. They were the ones who cleared the tree limbs and prepared the dead man's ambush. That's what it's called. That's the type of ambush they set up. Actually, it's a dead man's roadblock, but it's a, it's a classic ambush. It's, it's a last ditch. We're going to stop you at any costs. They were the ones who fed the fear and the lies to the Oregon State Police, whose agents were, you know, acting on what they thought was, you know, justifiable fear when they killed a man who had harmed no one, who had pointed a gun at no one, who was on his way to see the sheriff, not fleeing from justice. So, yeah, I'm sure there are good people within the FBI. But as an agency, come on, it's it's been politicized for a long time. And part of its job is to make sure that whatever uh, the, the federal government does or whatever cover it needs to to do what it's going to do, that it has it. I guess I don't feel bad for for saying that out loud and just, you know, let the chips fall where they may. The fact that they would be seen, you know, actively trying to undermine the election of uh, President Trump. Well, like I say, they've been politicized. Why wouldn't that be on the table? Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Hey, my friend Eric Mutsos is joining me. Eric, how are you? Good. How you doing, Brian? Fantastic. It's good to catch up with you, brother. And uh, those who uh, those who do know will will already know Eric has his own fabulous show uh, here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. But uh, I I kind of have you here today because I want to pick your brain a little bit about this uh, this shootout, if it could be called such, down in uh, Florida, where a couple of jewel th- robbers commandeered a UPS truck, took the driver hostage, off they went into traffic. Um, well, they got cornered, and the police unloaded on that truck. They got the bad guys, but they also got the truck driver, and they killed another uh, gentleman who was sitting there, um, you know, stuck in traffic. Uh, 
and I'm I know you have worn a badge and uniform you you would understand better what how how does the situation get to that point yeah well it gets to that point because because obviously a bad guy they're going to do anything that they can and and life and liberty and all of these things don't matter to them and so they're going to they're going to use whatever whatever methods to to get the goal that they want which you know ultimately they're they're they were stealing and then I, I, the more and more I read about it, it's just, it's, it really is a no win situation. Um, because as, as law enforcement, you're, we don't have a lot of training to, um, to disable a vehicle like that. You know, there's so many policies now why you can't shoot a tire because we're going to get sued. Um, certain spike strips now, you know, at least in Salt Lake city, they're starting to take away all those tools to be able to disable a vehicle. But then all of a sudden this happens. You know, it's like if 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 the police wouldn't have shot, because I'm not saying what they did. I wasn't there, you know, and, and usually we don't know all of the story. Um, but from what it looks like, they're in a they're in a lose lose situation, because if that if that UPS truck would have drove into 40 people and killed, you know, 17, they would be condemning the police for not stopping it earlier. And well, it would have been better if two people would have died. Than, than 17 people but you, so, but you have to play what if though to to get there and that's look it for the the thing that that to me makes it um makes me wonder if if the the police there weren't trained to um to overwhelmingly respond with overwhelming fire i mean i i think this is how i would have expected a squad of marines you know to to stop you know a terrorist cell that they had encountered um but with right. with that many innocent people around you know, I mean, it was the the truck is GPS trackable. They had a helicopter overhead. I know there are times when the police will de-escalate when it comes to chasing someone. Right. Um, if if these guys weren't actively driving around shooting people, maybe that would have been a good opportunity to de-escalate until th- they can catch up to right. them in a more favorable and less populated circumstance. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think what this comes back down to, Brian, is that citizens. Us, and when I say citizen, I just mean we the people. We, we need to be first responders. Like, I'm sure there's a hor- horrific policy in you. I, I don't know the policies of UPS, but but why why isn't this man armed? He he knows that <laughs> he's got all of these valuables, and at any moment someone's going to try to run. Why why doesn't he have a gun to begin with? It's like <laughs> this is why this is why. I believe our country should have been. Um, we should we should be the first responders, every single one of us. And and when that happens, you don't have instances like this, right? Because then the police don't get put in a position because we don't need that many police to begin with. Um, if that makes sense, because it's it's yeah. I think it's up to us. It's up to us so that this doesn't happen. Well, and, and, you know, I'll grant you, I'm looking at this through the eyes of someone who uh, I look at like, the, for instance, a, a few weeks ago when there was a believed to be a school shooter at uh, was it Lone Peak High School? And you had hundreds, oh, yeah. hundreds of officers descend on there and lock the school down and go through and clear it room by room by room. Um, I know there are people who are like, well, it was just a rumor, but I'm glad they did that, because what if it had been real? 
And I'm just the, I'm the odd guy out going, was that kind of a massive overresponse really necessary based on it yeah. was just a rumor? Well, right. When my friend called me on that one, he's like, dude, I just saw like a hundred cop cars go by and I'm not hearing anything. And it's like, I told him that that's because there's probably nothing. That's an overreaction. And, um, by the time that many cop cars get there, but it's already, it's already over, right? It's already done. So why, why are there more cop cars, more cop cars, more cop cars? Because it's just a big mess. It's a huge, you know, crap show. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm with you on it's you my know. take. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's just my take that we, we don't need this many law enforcement agents around. We don't. Um, but but the problem is is that we we now believe that the government should be the one to protect us in every certain situation. That yep. it's the government's job to to be there with guns. When the reality is, it needs to be us. And then we set the precedent that says, oh, when this happens, this is what we're going to do as a people. And you're going to see violence go down. You're going to see less robberies and hijack or, you know, carjackings and, you know, because because you'll see in the news quickly. Oh, this guy tried this, and this citizen shot this guy for doing for trying to do this. And and that's what will happen. But but we're so far gone to where we think that it's the police that are supposed to be our um, only line of defense when we are we are supposed to be the first line of defense. Well, and I, I see by making the police that first line of defense, um, especially in conjunction with the uh, war on terror, you know, it's it's a lot easier to blur that line between, you know, this is a peace officer and this is a warrior. That's right. So that's my take. I just think the, the way that the policies are on a lot of these, um, they don't have a lot of options. I mean, what are the options? And and either way, you're going to have somebody's going to get somebody's usually going to get hurt in something like that because they have to stop. You know, a lot of people think that police are trained to shoot to kill. And that's just it's not true. They're they're trained to stop. They're trained to shoot to stop the threat. And sometimes it's just unfortunate like this happens. And it's uh, it's it's awful. Could it have been worse? Yes. Could it have been better? Yes. But this is what happened. And it and it comes back. I think it always always comes back down to what are we doing as a people to to so these things don't happen to begin with, you know. In the and the at the very beginning, like if if somebody tried to or jack this car, and and the UPS driver would have been properly armed. Not so, I don't know if he was or not. Probably not. Yeah, I I don't know. I, I wish there were I wish there were easy answers. I, I can see they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. But there there's something about I don't know. You know, I, I guess I've seen Bonnie and Clyde's car. And, yeah, the, the law, the lawmen who took them down uh, definitely weren't, uh, you know, they weren't sparing ammo when they when they went to stop them. But this was proven cop killers. And it was done in a place that was away from people. It just it seems like the emphasis on overwhelming force you know, can be taken too far. Yeah. But. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. It's, I, and I agree with you. I agree with you. 
Um, but at the same time, you have to see like there's not a lot of options that they have. I don't know. No, it's every you situation's know, different. Every yeah. situation's different. It's I'm not I'm not condoning and I'm not and I'm not condemning in this situation because I wasn't there and I don't know. Well, I, I really appreciate you weighing in on this. I knew I could count on you for for a truthful, uh-huh. you know, take on it. Do you want to stick around for another segment or have you got stuff to do? Yeah, I got to head out. But, okay, but, uh, good enough. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time to be on with me, Eric. And we'll look forward to hearing your show coming up on Monday. All right, brother. See you. All right, we'll take a break. We'll be back after these messages. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. This is the Loving Liberty Program, 801-331-8113. All right, there was another article here. This is the one I wanted to share with you. I don't know if you get caught up in the the materialism of Christmas. And and frankly, I'm finding more and more people who have kind of stepped back from it, if you will. They, they've, they've decided to take a more meaningful approach to Christmas. In other words, uh, instead of lavishing those great big home alone gifts, you know, like uh, like we may have traditionally grown up with or saw people grow up with, they try to make it a little more lean, a little more meaningful, a little more personal, less look at all the stuff. So I get thinking about this kind of stuff because I look around as, you know, we're trying to pack and unpack the uh, Christmas decorations and whatnot. And I start realizing, man, we're accumulating crap again. We're starting to, we're looking like hoarders. We're putting, putting stuff away. It always makes me stop about, uh, is there an antidote? I stop and think about this. Is there an antidote to endless consumption? And this article by Benjamin, I hope I'm saying his name correctly, Lezik, Lezik, uh, it's, it, it could be a Polish name, so I'm probably saying it wrong, but he says uh, it's it's not purging the stuff that we own, but defining our relationship with stuff altogether. And this is about uh, the magic of making do. He says seven years ago, while living in London, England, my wife met Prince Charles at an event associated with the Prince's Foundation, where she worked. She returned with two observations. First, first she says the Prince of Wales used two fingers, index and middle, when he pointed. Second. Charles's suit had visible signs of mending. Now, a Google search fails to substantiate the double-barreled gesture, but the prince's penchant for patching has been well-documented. Last year, the journalist Marion Hume discovered a cardboard box containing more than 30 years of cutoffs and leftover materials from the prince's suits, tucked away in a corner at his Seville Row tailor, Anderson and Shepard. I've always long believed in trying to keep as many of my clothes and shoes going for as long as possible through patches and repairs, the prince told Mrs. Ms. Hume. In this way, I tend to be in fashion once every 25 years. Now, as it happens, double-breasted suits are rather on trend, but more notable is Prince Charles' sartorial philosophy, which could not be timelier. The prince comes from a tradition of admirable frugality. The queen reuses gift wrap. But his inclination to repair rather than replace to wear out his clothes until they wear out is an apt antidote to our increasingly disposable times. 
Most modern consumers aren't nearly so resourceful. For instance, the average Canadian buys 70 new pieces of clothing each year, about 60 of which ultimately end up in a landfill. Thrift stores only sell one in four pieces of donated clothing. According to a British study, the average article of women's clothing is worn seven times before it's discarded. Dang, I can tell you I have a lot more in common with Prince Charles than, than not in this case. I wonder if he grew up wearing tough skins. Eh, just wondering. Anyway, it says our bloated culture of consumption extends far beyond clothing. Last year, Canadian adults spent about $9,000 for consumer packaged goods, about twice as much as 25 years ago. We replace our smartphones every 25 months. We swap out TVs like toothbrushes. We browse for instant pots. We pet for pet hair removal gloves and spa bath pillows when we're at dinner, when we're driving, and when we're drunk. Shopping isn't just convenient. It's inescapable. The shiny and new is seldom more than a click and a day away. Mm, got a point here. Unsurprisingly, he says we are drowning in stuff. Despite the average Canadian home doubling in size over the past generation and family size shrinking... The self-storage industry is booming with nearly 3,000 jam-packed facilities nationwide. I think he's just talking Canada here. And that's just the stuff we keep. Landfills are overflowing. China has stopped taking much of our recycling. Africa is refusing our used clothing. And the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is one and a half times the size of Ontario and growing. Worse yet, he says, we're spending money we don't have. The average Canadian has about $30,000 of non-mortgage debt. Ralph Waldo Emerson put it best, things are in the saddle and ride mankind. We are increasingly desperate for a way out. And the author here says, for many, salvation has come via Marie Kondo, author of The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Now, her Marie method centers on a now famous question, which is, does this thing I own spark joy for me? If not, it's to be discarded. Others have found emancipation via figures such as Leo Babauta, Dave Bruno, and Tammy Strobel, avowed minimalists who own 50, 172 things, respectively. That's cool. That's something I think I would like to, I'd like to learn more about. The author says it's easy to understand the appeal of these alternative ideologies of consumerism, both of which reflect the same fundamental truth. All this stuff isn't making us happy. Minimalism is simple but extreme. Marie has broader appeal, promising a more fulfilling relationship with things once we've purged ourselves of the non-joy-producing inventory. But Marie asks far too much of our things and not nearly enough. When Prince Charles opens his closet, surely he does not ask if his fine, double-breasted suit sparks joy. Instead, he asks, does this fine, double-breasted suit Fulfill my need for today, which is to wear a fine double-breasted suit while pointing at my subjects with two fingers. It's a profoundly simple question, the spirit of which has been lost entirely today. In asking this question, Charles affirms his position as an unlikely champion for the forgotten virtue of making do. Making do is a deeply pragmatic philosophy. It means asking of our things the only question we should ever ask of them, can you fulfill your intended use for me? The answer, if we can be honest and resist a moment of discomfort, inconvenience, or boredom, is extraordinarily often yes. Making do is all about taming the reflex to discard, replace, or upgrade. 
It's about using things well and using them until they are used up. Taken literally, it means simply making something perform, making it do what it ought to do. If Marie Kondo delights in discarding, making do is about agonizing over it, admitting that we should probably have not bought that thing in the first place. Instead of thanking our ongoing, our outgoing goods for their meager service per Ms. Kondo, making do means admonishing ourselves for being so thoughtless in the first place. Ditching something costs us ecologically and cosmically. It should sting. And it should teach us to think more carefully about the real value of things. As Juliet Shore writes in Plenitude, The New Economics of True Wealth, we don't need to be less materialistic, as the standard formation would have it, but more so. By becoming more materialistic in this deeper sense, we can radically reorient our relationship with things. In this way, we can not only mitigate the high cost of thoughtless consumption, saving us money and the planet harm, but also we might just wind up a whole lot happier. Making do in times of scarcity is straightforward. If our weekly sugar ration is 200 grams, then we get by. In the context of abundance, it's complicated. How do we set limits when more or new is easily within reach? The challenge, of course, is that making do is at odds with human nature. As products of evolution, we are predisposed to seek novelty and variety and excess. Now we hunt for bargains, not mastodons. Even Adam Smith, the father of Homo economus, that perfectly rational, utility-seeking consumer of classical economics, wrote in the theory of moral sentiments in 1759 that frivolous objects are often the secret motive of the most serious and important pursuits. In other words, to be frivolous is to be human. To aspire to pure pragmatism, to only own necessities, is misguided. The fundamental question of what is essential and what has not has been a moving target since at least the 15th century. That's according to Frank Trentman, author of Empire of Things, How We Became a World of Consumers. He says every generation complains that the lower orders are suddenly wanting things that their parents or grandparents didn't have. End quote. Well, making do accommodates for this kind of hedonistic adaptation. It allows for wide-ranging materialism, provided it's thoughtful, critical, and honest. Now, the author here says, for me, making do is an aspirant. I often fall short. I succeeded, however, with my previous television, an off-brand, early-generation flat screen. Friends mocked me, but in an era in which we happily watched three-inch screens, I deemed my 12-year-old Olivia adequate. My company recently replaced its boardroom TV. I took the cast off home and gave the Olivia to a friend. He says it was a small but meaningless or meaningful victory, especially for household appliances, which tend to visit our homes briefly en route to the landfill. Now, he says, as a parent in an era in which toy companies have stretched commercials to 22-minute-long episodes, temptation's everywhere. Still, he says, I'm a hardcore proponent of the cardboard box theory of toys. The box, and later the unboxing, trumps the contents. He says, I virtually never buy toys. When my kids ask, I say, we don't really buy stuff like that. He says, my eldest is five, so wish me luck. He says, my wife rejected my pitch for our kids to wear potato sacks until the age of 12, presumably because most potato sacks are paper nowadays. Still... We opt for hand-me-downs or second-hand where possible, and we supplement with fast fashion-seeking clothes that last at least until they cease to fit anyone in our home. I think my mom may have been cut from similar cloth. Gotta take a break. We'll be back after these messages.
You are listening to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Thank you so much for making this program a part of your day. 801-331-8113 if you'd like to call in. Uh, I've been sharing an article. This is uh, published, uh, actually, I'm looking at the big Canadian maple leaf here. The uh, author... Sorry, I'm going to have to try his name, and, and I'm, I'm going to do my best not to, to butcher it. The author's name is Benjamin Lesses. I, I hope I'm saying it correctly, but uh, this is on the Globe and Mail out of Canada, and it's about the life-changing magic of making do. And it's not for everybody. You know, some people are you know going to be, I'll just do it because I live in a time when I can buy what I want. I'll go buy it. But for those of you who, who find the joy and, hey, you know what? I made this thing work, and... Uh, it just, I don't know, it gives you a feeling like you're being a good steward of whatever it is you have in your life. I'm going to post this in the show notes. I would encourage you to take a look at it. It's a fairly lengthy article, but there's some terrific food for thought. And just the, the whole concept that, uh, you know, maybe the stuff of life, such as we're told to see it, isn't really stuff after all. Just something to consider. All right. I want to share a couple of thoughts on uh, this. This is... Uh, an article that came up a little bit earlier about a a pastor in, I think it's in Spokane, Washington showed up to, uh, I assume to protest at drag queen story hour and ended up getting arrested for it. Now, look, you can, you can think what you want there. Okay. Well, maybe he shouldn't have gone trying to start trouble or, or something like this. I don't know. Seems like uh, yeah, it's, it sounds like protest for sure. But in the grand scheme of things, as far as uh, how you know how disruptive this guy was, that doesn't really seem that doesn't seem too too out of order for me. Nonetheless, he got himself arrested, charged with uh, with trespass. And this was for showing up and protesting. The whole reason he showed up to protest Drag Queen Story Hour was he was uh, he was not happy about the idea of kids being um, exposed to men in dresses and uh, basically kids being exposed to and normalized with a sexual fetish. And Drag Queen Story Hour is where a cross-dressing person reads young children books about sexuality. Now, when this uh, pastor, his name is, great, another fun one here, Afshin Yatkin, Yachtin, Afshin Yachtin, he uh, attempted to enter the Spokane Library, South Hill Public Library. He was going to quietly pray. Okay, I was wrong. I thought he was going to actually, like, recite scripture. He was just there to quietly pray. But the police arrested him. He wasn't holding a sign. He had no megaphone. He wasn't even attempting to be disruptive. Oh, my word. This is getting even worse. He simply wanted to enter the building and exercise his constitutionally guaranteed rights. Well, he was told that, uh, you know, he would be arrested for obstructing. And you would think after he was arrested, he'd be let go with at most a warning, right? He wasn't threatening, wasn't violent, wasn't even an agitator. But no, Spokane City Attorney's Office pressed full charges against this dangerous Christian trying to exercise his rights. Thankfully, when the case was brought before a Spokane Municipal Court, the judge took a look at it and threw out the case for violating Yachtin's right to free speech and also for lack of evidence. So it would be a win for free speech and religious liberty, right? 
Well, maybe not. Unfortunately, this story isn't over yet because the city of Spokane's prosecutor's office has indicated now it wants to appeal the judge's decision and make an example out of this man. Now, to put this into perspective, well, you know, there's a dangerous time to be protesting against something as innocuous as drag queen story time. Just keep in mind that right now, Spokane is ranked third most dangerous for property crimes nationally. Top three. That's pretty good. They have 649 rape kits awaiting attention. An opioid crisis is raging. A serial killer still hasn't been caught yet. But here the city attorney's office is determined to throw the book at a pastor who had an opinion, and a peaceful one at that, about a sexist minstrel show being performed for children. See, it's stuff like this that, you know, I... I, I've got a good friend, and I think he's a diehard freedom advocate, but for some reason it really upsets him when I bring up stories like this. He says, oh, that's just, it's political fodder. All this is doing is just, you know, widening the divisions between the people. And yet, I'm not calling for a political solution here. I'm just pointing to what is a, a spectacle of bizarreness. And detachment from reality. And when I share something like this, you know, my goal isn't to get you angry. I think more than anything, what I'm trying to do is say, you see this too, right? Please tell me I'm not the only one who's seeing this. Because I feel like I've been taking crazy pills when I, when I see what, what is defended and what is punished. I mean, I think back to, I, I don't know where it was. I was thinking maybe it was somewhere in California. There was another drag queen story time, and there was a pastor who attended there. He waited until questions and answers. Someone asked, you know, do you have any questions? Any questions? And he raised his hand, yes. How are you going to feel when you face God and you have, to, um, you have to explain to him why you were trying to sexualize young children? And you can see this look of shock and horror go over the faces of the parents with these tiny little kids and on the, you know, drag queen story, story hour participants themselves. You can see them all just kind of like, can you say something like that? And then the anger comes out and he's being, you know, shouted down and told, shut up. And they follow him out to his car and they're just... You know, anything. Get him out of here. Get out of here. You and your... How dare you? But, I mean, he, he called them to repentance. Now, I don't think any criminal charge was ever filed against him. Although, uh, you know, those of you who are maybe really angry that he would do such a thing, you'll be glad to know that, you know, the following weekend, somebody broke into his church and spray-painted satanic symbols everywhere. So, you know, in the grand scheme of things, <laughs> it all came out, you know, for the best. Now, seriously, are we at the point... Or a person cannot even peacefully register disapproval or disagreement or an unwillingness to cheer on command without bringing the state into it. This article that I'm looking at asks, why is the city so intent on going after a Christian exercising his rights? How dangerous can Christian ideology be? that the city will invest so many resources in prosecuting one man for allegedly obstructing the police rather than in, into investigating rape or murder. Do they have an anti-Christian bias at the, Spokane attorney, the city of Spokane attorney's office? Uh, the lead prosecutor's social media would seem to indicate so. 
On Facebook, he referred to the people associated with the case as religious loonies. Well, look, religion or not, we are we are flirting with some really dangerous things. And I think the sexualizing of children is one of those that uh, I just I don't know that uh, I don't know that it's it's a a thing that that we're going to be able to skate on. In the sense that if you just ignore it, it'll just go away and everything will be great. I think we're reaching a point where somebody's going to have to be brave enough to say enough is enough. I want to think I'm brave enough to do it. But then I look at, you know, this pastor getting arrested simply for trying to walk into the library and pray silently. I don't think you're the one out there drawing the line in the sand. I'm not the one out there drawing the line in the sand. But I definitely see a day approaching where there is going to be a line there. And I'm hoping I'm on the right side of that line. I hope I have the courage to speak the truth. I spent a few years practicing and had to experience a little bit of discomfort along the way, but my understanding is that's par for the course. If we won't stand up for childhood innocence, I mean, what would we stand up for? Jeff Minnick says the controversy, you know, is over our our ongoing sexualization of our children is a real thing. He says it's an abomination. Drag queen story hour, television sitcoms, even sexual material and stories aimed at elementary school kids, fashions for girls, popular contemporary songs, access to online pornography, and on and on it goes. And he asks, have we lost the idea of childhood innocence? To those who keep pushing sex at kids and who keep insisting on propagandizing them about certain lifestyles, he says, I have two words. Please stop. No, that's too polite. Just stop. Welcome to the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 